Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Photographers of Color podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Turner, Research Fellow in Photography in the School of Art here at the University of Arkansas. As you know, in this podcast, we talk about what it means to be a person of color working in photography and other lens-based media today. Our guest for Episode 9 is Sama Alshabi. Sama Alshabi's practice examines the mechanisms, displacement, and fragmentation in the aftermath of war and exile. Her photographs, videos, and immersive installations features the body, often her own, as either gendered site or a geographic device, resisting oppressive political and social conditions. Alshabi's monograph, Sand Rushes In, published by Aperture in 2015, presents her Sicilia series, which probes the human dimensions of migration, borders, and environmental demise. Alshabi is based in Tucson, Arizona, where she is a professor of photography, video, and imaging at the University of Arizona. Alshabi holds a BA in photography from Columbia College Chicago and an MFA in photography, video, and media arts from the University of Colorado at Boulder. I had a chance to hear Sama speak earlier in the semester on campus here at the University of Arkansas when she was in town for the 2020 State of the Arts exhibition opening at Crystal Bridges and the Momentary. I had been trying to get Sama on the podcast for a while, and after hearing her speak and meeting in person, we finally had a chance to make it happen. I really hope you enjoy this conversation that we had. Without further ado, here is Episode 9 with Sama Alshabi. Thank you for talking with me today, Sama. I have a total of five questions plus follow-ups for you. And so I was trying to put this together and organize this last night. I'm just going to try to let it flow. I'm trying to leave them open-ended so that you can just talk freely as you want. Um, And so the first question I want to start off by asking you is about your background and your family. Um, You're from Basra, Iraq. Um, you're born to an Iraqi father and a Palestinian mother. Tell us through the time about growing up and making the transition from living in Iraq to transitioning here to the United States. Well, um, so as you said, my mom is Palestinian. She mm-hmm. is part of um, the refugees uh, that left in 1948 when the state of Israel was created. So she's of that wave that left and that were never allowed to go back to their homes mm-hmm. because the part of the, of historical Palestine that they're part, um, that they are from became Israel. And so, um, her family uh, settled in Iraq, um, and Baghdad and she married my father and eventually had five children with him. And I was the middle kid. And, um, so yeah, we left Iraq when I was quite young, actually. I think I was um, eight years old seven years old, something like that. It was the Iraq-Iran war. Um, the reason why it's confusing for me about the year is because we left, we escaped, we moved to Saudi Arabia. And then once we were out, my parents saw how big the war was, that it wasn't something that was going to be fast and that we'd eventually get to back to Iraq. So uh, my parents made a decision that my mother and the kids would go back to Iraq and try to sell the house and try to get our um, belonging, get money out of the bank quietly. Of course, my father couldn't go back. Otherwise, he would have been, um, you know, executed for deserting, leaving his job. You know, uh, we, we escaped the first time and we escaped the second time. So we got stuck back there for um, another period, another year, because they closed the borders when we went back to Iraq. 
anyway, eventually we escaped again through a plan of my mom's and we lived in Saudi Arabia for a couple of years and in Riyadh. Then we lived in Jordan, Amman, and then we lived in United Arab Emirates. And there was stuff in between as well, but those were the main places that we lived. And I think my mom just realized that this wasn't going to end, that we were just going to keep moving and the war was not ending soon and we were not going to go back to Iraq. And, and just having, you know, been through it with her own family, with her parents, always waiting for this return, this return to Palestine that never materialized. Um, I think she knew that it was not in her family's interest for us to keep migrating like that and that we should settle somewhere. My parents had already been to the U.S. We had already been to the U.S. before. My father received his PhD in the United States. And so that's where she wanted to come to her the United States, um, offered the promise of prosperity, of peace, of, of um, you know, diversity. She just thought it was a wonderful place and she was sure it was a place that no war would come to or conflict. So we did move to the U.S. The transition was quite difficult. Parents had to live apart. My father had to live in the Middle East and keep working and providing us money. Um, for us to stay there, we entered with a student visa. Um, my mother staying in university. I mean, she already had her degrees, but she just kept going to university for us to be able to to be in the United States legally. And that just that relationship warned my parents, and they finally split, which put us into an illegal status in the United States, an undocumented status, because she could no longer afford to stay at university and school and keep up with her visas. And so, my my childhood was quite difficult. And moving around was quite difficult. But at the same time, I was with my siblings and um, we were very close family. And I guess I just didn't know any better because it started so young. War was very defining for me from a very young age. And even prior to that, the story of war, the story of losing Palestine was always present um, and not being able to return to your home. And then I had the same experience. And so this double negation of our homelands of war uh, ejecting us from our homelands was sort of the, the, I don't know, the narrative that shaped my identity. And even being in the United States, you know, in Iowa, while it had wonderful things about it, it was also very difficult because I was undocumented and I was hiding that obviously from my friends um, and everyone around me. And so I never could really settle or assimilate because I always knew that I was always on a brink of being ejected. With that being said, can you tell us about your first experiences with the camera or just photography in general? Because I know formerly you were trained at Columbia College in Chicago and then University of Colorado Boulder. And I know those were kind of at two different points in your life. Um, so can you take us you know, through your first experiences with the camera and then sort of what your experiences were like through these getting, you know, in Chicago and Colorado? Sure. My father was an avid photographer. Uh, he's, you know, PhD in business administration, but his his hobby was photography, and um, and then eventually even, you know, the super eight millimeter and the mm -hmm. VHS cameras, and so he just loved images and home movies, but photographs. He always made photographs. So, but I also think photography became, was important to me even before he taught me, which was quite young, maybe thirteen when he started teaching me the manual camera. Um, 12 or 13 and but I, I was interested in even before that because my mother placed such an importance on our photographs when we 
um, were planning our escape from Iraq the second time. I would watch my mom every night go through our family albums and take out all of the photographs. And she is a seamstress and designer, and so she was sewing them into our clothes because we were going to be escaping with just our clothes and not look like that we were leaving permanently. She was seeking permission for a two-day leave from her job and get permission papers to have some medical treatment in Kuwait that she couldn't have in Iraq because uh, the, the healthcare was for the army only and not for civilians at that time. So I knew those photographs were very important and that there was something about those vernacular photographs that meant something to her. I mean, later on in life, I came to understand that she knew that that was the thing to save because her own family lost almost all their images. They just had a handful. And those were the, the, the that was the biggest regret because those photographs contained evidence. They were witnesses to a time and to a history that they belonged to that was being taken away from them. So I understood the, the value of photographs very young, but I didn't necessarily know the language about why. Uh, but I knew they were important to my mother, and that was the only thing besides our lives that was worth saving. So eventually my father started teaching me photography, and, you know, he'd always have cameras, and he'd always have video cameras or Super 8, and he'd let my oldest brother and I, who's my brother, oldest brother as a filmmaker, play with them because we took a very strong interest in them young, when I was young. I, I first went to school. I didn't have money to go to school because I was undocumented, so... I I could only take classes at a community college, and at that time I was living in Den. Well, I took classes at uh, um, what was that school? CCD or something. It's a community college in Denver, and that's where I got into. That's where I first like really learned the zone system and all that stuff. And my my teacher was uh, an apprentice for Brett Preston, uh, and his name was uh, Ron Woolard, and. Mm -hmm. And those are the very first photographs I really made seriously. Um, there were portraits mostly of my friends or nudes of my friends. I was very original at that time about what to <laughs> photograph, but they were very performative. I didn't use myself at all in those images. I took pictures of people and I became like, you know, everybody, every group of friends has like the documentary photographer who took all the pictures. That was always me. Mm -hmm. And around this time, it was the Gulf War um, when uh, United when Iraq invaded Kuwait, the United States invaded Iraq. Um, and that's how we were discovered, that we were Iraqi citizens that had never left the United States. And so a deportation process started, which we fought in INS court for for a refugee status, for, for mercy, basically. Um, because if we were to be deported, we'd be deported back to Iraq. And we were blacklisted for Iraq from escaping. And for sure, at that point, with our now American accents, my oldest brother being at military age, and us having been gone all this time, uh, we would have been executed. We've been considered spies, and we've definitely been killed. So the judge took, you know, my two youngest brothers were born in the United States. And so the judge, I think, took pity as he understood that my mother was going to leave those two kids rather than have them go to the Iraq to be killed. I think he understood the grave uh, situation that we were in. And he also, you know, it, it was just, we could prove that we were never, we were never Ba'athists. We were never Saddam Hussein loyalists. My mother's brothers had gone to jail for being objectors. Um, we had proof that we never signed to their party. So I honestly don't believe that that happened in this time and age, that the same sort of outcome would, 
would be, but it wasn't so politicized ref- refugees are being undocumented as it is now. Mm-hmm. So we, re- we received um, a refugee status, which allowed me to go to school. And that's when I um, applied to Columbia College and okay. I studied uh, there. I went, honestly, because I wanted to be a war photojournalist. I thought that was my life dream, that um, it was always very difficult for me being in the United States and seeing, you know, this is before social media, so everything you'd see would be from the media, would be from, you know, the new cable news, CNN that would come out, or Washington Post, or local newspapers, and the image of the Arab was one that was a terrorist, sometimes mm-hmm. a victim, victim of violence, but mostly a terrorist or a militant. This is in the era of hijackings, of the PLO, to to capture the international attention of the world. Um, obviously, Iraq specifically was highly targeted as uh, an enemy of the United States. And so I, I, I remember I was speaking to Chester Higgins, who was a visiting artist at my university at Columbia, at my art school, and pushing on him why these kinds of images were made. And him saying, well, we don't have any photographers or writers out there that are from there. so." It's always sensationalized because it's an outsider looking in. And so when you graduate from school, give me a call and we'll get you stationed in the wards. And I was seriously, that's what I wanted to do. I've always been obsessed with war and politics, but I never could make those kinds of images. And maybe maybe it's because I was in Chicago and it, the, there was conflict there, obviously. There was um, poverty and there was crime and there was social strife. But those those images that I try to make, I just couldn't really do them. They always felt like they were about somebody else and there was somebody else's story. And that it really wasn't war that I wanted to talk about. I wanted to speak to my experience and my family experience and the people that I knew and what they had gone through, their experience. And I didn't have a mechanism to do that in Chicago externally through social documentary. So this is when I started you know, I was studying uh, a lot of photographers at the times, but the major influences on me was at that particular time was Carrie Mae Weems, mm-hmm. predominantly Carrie Mae Weems, and looking at her work and thinking about how she could tell a story about so long ago and completely now and speak about herself and speak about mm-hmm. her context, but speak to black, the Black experience, talk about slavery, talk about um, Jim Crow laws. These were all present in her work, talked about love, talked about family. And I started to take pictures of myself. My professor was John H. White, um, who was African-American Pulitzer Prize winning photographer for the Chicago Sun-Times. Mm-hmm. Uh, picture of Mandela leaving you know, his prison in South Africa was captured by him. And he was major influence on me. And I was on, in all his classes. I was in the photojournalism track at Columbia, but I was taking pictures of myself. Mm-hmm. which was confusing to him. <laughs> Some of this is not documentary or photojournalism if you're yeah. taking pictures of yourself and writing on the wall. But he let me stay in his classes and he let me be me and let me do my work. And so my critiques were mostly in conversation with the works I were doing. I mean, sometimes I was also taking pictures of the Toys for Tots in Chicago or the Mayor Race or basketball, mm-hmm. but they were assignments. And the work I was doing with myself was the work about that was it was the practice I wound up you know, pursuing my entire life. Eventually, 
I graduated from there and I was working as a corporate photographer for a little while with the Tribune, with the Tribune company, freelancing. My I married and had a child uh, pretty quick after grad school, maybe, I mean, undergrad, maybe one year afterwards. And we moved to Colorado where my family lived. My husband was getting his PhD at University of Denver. And on his first day of class, uh, he woke me up in the morning and said, come out here that uh, a plane just went into the World Trains, the World Trade Center. Hmm. So I woke up and I went straight to the TV. And as I was walking to the TV, I saw the second plane impact um, into the World Trade Center. And I picked up the phone and called my mother. I knew it was terrorism and I knew it had to be something from the Middle East because that's what the conflict was at that time. And it's just so that whole next year was very defining. It, all the kind of questions about my life experience and the work I wanted to make and, and how I didn't know how to do it came into focus in those months after 9-11. And I knew I was going to go to grad school. I decided at that point I was ready to, to take this on, that I was not going to do this commercial professional photography with side projects here and there, that I wanted to pursue art. And within weeks, got my application into the one school that I could go to, which is University of Colorado at Boulder, because <laughs> my husband was in school and um, we, you know, I needed a PhD, I mean, I needed a master, an MFA program, but it turned out to that to be the perfect program for me because mm-hmm. I studied with Albert Chong, um, another black photographer who yeah. was extremely influential on my work. Um, and it was after 9-11, so all the kind of themes that were happening in the humanities, and speakers and visiting artists were based on the topic of war, diaspora, exile, migration, the mediated image. And so it was a hypercharged time for me, and it was just the right time. The complexity of my lived experience and my family's lived experience dating back to generations and what my, the region was experiencing, the part of the world I'm from, and where I was living, United States, were all in conversation. It was the national conversation. It was the international conversation, right? Mm-hmm. It was absolutely everything about that time um, was a focus. And so it was not just going to school and studying photography. The life experience was school and framed the work that I was already starting to do. Yeah. Oh, that's that's so amazing. And uh, you already mentioned <laughs> so many things I wanted to bring up at a sure. later time. I'm actually this other question first, but uh, I too started out as a photojournalist because uh, I was going to just be a newspaper writer. But then it was around the time where like um, the economy after that 2008 crash, um, you know, a few years after that, it was all the talk was like, oh, you have to be able to do the writing, take the photos, do video. And, you know, I'm thinking I'm going to be this photojournalist, but I also wanted to do war photography too. <laughs> uh, really? Because, yeah, because in my, they didn't have a photojournalism like journalism professors or they didn't bring in a professional that was currently working to teach the class. So I had to go to the art department and, and take classes to learn photography. And, uh, the first images that I was exposed to in terms of studying photography seriously was Robert Kappa's images. And then you hear the whole story about the uh, rolls of film from D-Day, you know, melting in the 
film dryer and all this kind of stuff. I was just so um, intrigued by that and I wanted to do that. And, you know, at first, it was my limited experience and exposure to photography. And then I eventually like moved on from that and went on to study art. But I'm so happy to hear you mention Chester Higgins. I think he's so underrated. You know, I'm not sure about in which generations. Definitely in my generation, I don't think a lot of people know about Chester Higgins' work, but his connection to P.H. Polk and, you know, uh, Deborah Willis's research on P.H. Polk and bringing right. that to the forefront uh, is pretty amazing. Then you mentioned John H. White. Just amazing and you know the first uh photographer to win a, a pulitzer prize from daily assignments that's right. a major achievement in in a black photographer to do that at least in his whole story of leaving uh, north carolina um they weren't hiring black photographers then and his then mentor is like you got to come to chicago and work for me so just so many amazing things. You already mentioned Carrie. We're going to talk about Carrie in depth. Uh, I'm going to let you speak openly about that um, specific question for you around that. But moving okay. on to the next question, um, I want to dive right in and ask you about the photographs of Eternal Love Song and Hornet's Nest. Um, and I believe these are from your series, Carrie Over. And you they spoke about indeed. you spoke about these in your lecture when you were here at, in Arkansas. And so this series, you were dealing with the idea of staging the imagined, right? And uh, the interest and societal impact of unequal power relations between the West and the Middle East and how um, that domination is represented through photographs. Can you speak openly about those two images and just that project in general? Yeah, I mean, uh, so Carryover is my most recent project that I've been oh. working on well, I finished it now, but it, it, it was something I was working on for the last couple of years. And the project is produced, has different components, but mostly it's in albumin printing and in photogravure. Um, and I, I really, when I first started the project, I had this concept of, of wanting to show um, the female figure, which in my work, I use my body, right? So it's mostly mm -hmm. always me. And then carry over exclusively me. But I wanted to I have this idea of 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 what you, we carry with us, right? When we migrate, when we leave, and and what is the burden of what we carry and our experience? And so, this the 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 question of Orientalism is is something that I have dealt with here and there in my work, because it's it's it hankers back to the to the original images, the first images that were produced in the Middle East, and especially the Middle East and North Africa, and especially when it comes to women and how they were exoticized and orientalized the language that we used of how the, that part of the world was described then by Western photographers, right? And painters and artists and writers. But I was really specifically looking at the photographers that you know uh, came to that part of the world to make these kinds of fantastical fantasy-driven images, this sort of fetishizing of the region um, for Western consumption, the the exotic land, um, tourism, the luxury of travel, and thinking of this female as the essential characteristics that is to describe that place. And so on one side, you have this kind of uh, portrayal of the sexy, sultry, you know, mm -hmm. harem, belly dancer, the kind of... Um, 
female that provides a fantasy portal for uh, what men in the West who are disgruntled with the women's suffrage movement, women leaving the home, women working, women wanting rights, right? Um, and the idea of this kind of primitive ideal of where women are the fantasy and at the, at the pleasure of men. And then the other sort of portrayal of women uh, that was coming from the Orientalist photographers were images of the kind of very secluded, veiled, covered up woman. And again, that's also tied to she's, her body is only to be looked at for the men's pleasure, right? Mm -hmm. a, a concubine or a multiple wives in the service of men as well. And so, but they both are inaccurate and very thin and very exploitive depictions of women. This talks about the, the social and economic policies of occupation and colonialism, right? So this is the time that the West, um, especially the UK and France and other countries in Europe, dominated this part of the world and occupied them and uh, used the people, the indigenous people of this area to their own um, advantage. And so there was no way that a woman um, in the position of being asked to be to sit for a photograph or being paid to sit for a photograph um, would have any power or control. And so the subject about who has power and whose story is this is something that are themes that I've woven through my work over time. What is the relationship between the occupier and the occupied, right? Between the colonizer and the colonized, mm -hmm. um, the victimizer and the victimized. And so I, I wanted to invert that, um, that power struggle by being photographer, subject, concept, but also to look at that objective patient that happened of these women and of the region through that lens of how the world understands us, how the image of the Oriental woman forever framed our, the West's relationship through images of what mm -hmm. that part of the world is. And so when I said to you a bit earlier, when I looked at images in the media when I was young in the United States, it was a very shallow, crude depiction of my people, the, the terrorist or the victim right, of a war but lacking the complexity that uh, our stories and conditions of people's lives and experiences, or that they have a history even, or that they have other experiences, that they don't have the same kinds of struggles and fears and desires that their Western counterparts may have. And so it's quite difficult because in the same time, I don't want to perpetuate just trauma stories through my work. So I have to think about strategies that I can complicate the story and uh, resist the depiction and yet speak to that that history and so carry over that project came in a time that I wanted to look at basically the history of the image and the moving image and how it came to be historically and what it meant for its future um, and then to take to put my take on it. So one of the first things I knew that I was going to do is that I wanted to kind of unpack the, the, the tropes that you often found in those historical images. And so these were all very staged images. And if you study them, you know, you understand, yes, they're documents. They, they contain information about that time in history, like all photographs do. But they are also a stage of a fantasy. They are a part of scene making. 
that was uh, a commercialized cliche that was very popular that you could peddle over and over again in the West. And so I picked up on those as uh, those components, these tropes, uh, everything from the mushrabiya, which is the lattice um, woodwork in Islamic architecture and homes, which sometimes in the West they call the harem's window because you can't see in, but they can see out. So it's for like it's like another kind of veil. It's actually just a very practical way of having a home because air circulates. But these are the kinds of fantasies yeah. and descriptions that get applied to this. The oriental carpet, the the hookah, right? The smoking, the water pipe, um, always lounging with a water pipe. The costumes, the ethnic costumes, the headdresses that were um, indicative of like cultural, historic cultural costumes of, of indigenous tribes um, and peoples. And I'm looking at my room because I have some some of them around. So I'm like, what else was in there? Um, and so, and yeah, and then the, and so these were like some of the main elements that I played with. And oh, and I'm sorry, and the vessel. So usually the the main the main one, the water vessel mm -hmm. that stands on top of the woman's head. So it's funny because when I started studying these 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 images, like from a a research point of view, rather than just looking at them through my life like really focusing in on them, it, it, it triggered some memory for me too of, of, of seeing uh, women carrying things on their head in Iraq. Um, because all of these truths tend to have, I mean, all of these images tend to have moments of truth in them, right? They are documents and data. There is a reason why the Orientalist photographers had women staged with water vessels on their head, right? Mm -hmm. Because there was something that they saw, women, in villages carrying water vessels and going to the well and bringing water back. But they didn't never made images of women who lived in the urban centers and dressed exactly like women did in the West, right? The same kind of clothing, the same kind of styles. Those were not images that they were interested in making, right? Mm -hmm. Or taking. So I started to make sculptures um, that were usually at the size of my body. So overwhelming in size really recognizing uh, one of the images that I had seen in a National Geographic in 1950, which reminded me of being in Iraq, which is the women carrying, they call them the milkmaids, and they carry these big thick cans that stack all the way up their heads and the bread, the morning bread between it, and they would go around the city and bring the, the gamer, which is a, a kind of a thick cream, buffalo milk cream that they would make that gets served with Iraqi bread and gets served with tea and they would bring it to the different families. Mm -hmm. And this is the kind of work that's disappeared for women in Iraq as the public sphere has become so insecure um, post 9-11, you know, after the United States uh, invaded Iraq for the second time and then of course ISIS. So um, that was something interesting to see this kind of vanishing work of women's labor that I wanted to tackle and carry over. Also just the critique of those images that I'd seen historically. But in particular, the one you talked about was Eternal Love Song and mm -hmm. Hornet's Nest. So Hornet's Nest, I'll start with that one because that was one of the first images that came in my mind that I wanted to make was this super exaggerated water vessel. And both of those images, by the way, speak to the Palestinian experience and speak to the kinds of images that were made in Palestine by the Orientalists. And there are other images that deal with other parts of uh, the Middle East and North Africa, 
the stacked one that's called Gamer obviously deals with Iraq. But these two particular that you've selected to talk about are in particular specific to me about the Levant, in particular Palestine. So this 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 desire to always um, depict Palestinian women with this uh, water vessel over their head and and. If you look at those images from that time, there was a lot made in Palestine, and why, right? So there's the West um, sort of obsession of Palestine because it's uh, it's religious importance of it being the birthplace of Christ, right? Um, and so a lot of images were made in that particular place that had that were eventually turned into postcards and shipped back home to the West that had language that dealt with, uh, you know. Palestinian women or, or or women walking where Jesus walked or where mm -hmm. Mary sat or so it had this kind of religious like flavor to it that was part of its commercial appear appeal in the West. Um, and so in Hornet's Nest, the vessel is enormous. It's actually made out of wood. It's a very big vessel. Um, wow. Yeah, so it's it's quite heavy, huge, um, and it's got a hole on the bottom. And the shape of the vessel is like a hornet's nest or mm -hmm. like um, uh, a grenade. It's not shaped exactly like the way the vessel would, although it has the indicators of it being the water vessel. But it has a hole in the bottle, in the bottom, which is kind of how a, a nest would have it too. It would have an entry point. Um, and so that hole makes it dysfunctional. So it, it's all at once powerful image of this woman hoisting up Right, the subject hoisting up this vessel, the burden of it, but she's carrying it. But it's war and conflict that she's carrying. It's got the grenade, it's got the wasp nest, the you know, the hornet's nest above mm -hmm. her. And at the same time, it's absolutely absurd because it's a dysfunctional vessel. It can't function. So it implicates the dysfunction of these images as information. It implicates the impossibility of this burden of carrying one's home or country or land um and that you can't do it it's going to fall out of it you cannot take it with you it's going to come out and if you look very carefully at the image she's wearing all white a white scarf a white um dress my mother made the dress i designed it my mother made it for me um it's a very stiff kind of uh outfit and um the brides um and the cultural tunics that women would wear from the part of Palestine my mother is from is they wear white and the women always wear the white scarf. They don't wear black scarves like Iraqi women do. That's mm. their historical scarf. So those indicators about it being Palestinian in, in orientation is there. And also the belt is a kofia. It's got the black, you know, what they, the Palestinians, the black and white checkered scarf that identifies mm -hmm. their struggle attachment to the land. So when Yasser Arafat or the PLO started wearing the kofia and then it became the symbol of the Palestinian resistance, it's because they were attaching their resistance to the to the land. The farmers wore it. And so they were saying the Palestinians resistance is about the relationship to our land. Mm. So those are all like components that has um, a kind of ethnographic approach, a, a personal approach. It's got a historical document. It's got a critique. It subverts the images that were made historically. And it's got the sculpture and it's got the performative element, right? It's all mm -hmm. in there. And again, it's photographer is also subject, right? And so that yes. power negotiation is very important. Um, Eternal Love Song 
um, is, uh, so it's got also a different kind of vessel, but it's got a travel trunk. Um, so the travel trunks are like the metal trunks that they used to have um, before we started carrying backpacks and stuff, right? It's like a metal trunk that you would actually put your luggage in and, and mm -hmm. go on the, the trains. I actually uh, bidded for a travel trunk um, on eBay and bought one that was made in 1948. And it had a, it had a record on it, which was kind of amazing because that's the, the, the year that um, Palestine, we call it the Nekba, which is the depopulation of Palestine that created the state of Israel. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. So, um, so that's the birth of the refugees, of Palestinian refugees, of our exile. That year is the, the creation of our exile, my mother's exile, my family's exile. So I took that travel trunk and we cut, I cut the panels out so that it's a hollow. It's only a shell of the frame. It's hollowed out. And so you can see through it. And so, again, it's a dysfunctional vessel that can't operate in its form. The sculpture cannot do what it's meant to do, which is to contain your personal belongings. And so I'm speaking about the impossibility, again, to carry one's home. You can, it's above the head. So the indicator is that you can create, you can maybe carry your memory, but the items that actually make up homeland is impossible to carry in a trunk, right? The mm -hmm. views out your window, your house, your family and your friends, uh, your experiences, your memories, the smell of, of your olive trees, um, right? These are in your homeland. You cannot carry them in a suitcase. My mother could sew the photographs that might trigger those memories into my clothes when we escaped Iraq. She couldn't bring what was contained in those images, right? And so... I really wanted to speak to that impossibility. But in the same time, if you look at what the, uh, the subject is wearing, again, the embroidered work of, of the scarf is the traditional Palestinian women's work, that they embroidery their narratives. Embroidery work tells our stories. And it's something I have worked with as a subject for since I was in graduate school, recreating the artifacts that were lost um, uh, as cultural like practices that were women's work that's told our stories, the narratives of our history, the, the flora and fauna as design inside the, the, the stitchings, right? And in the clothes that became part of what women wore to weddings, special events, or even to the market. That's in that. Um, and the sickle is another motif um, and metaphor to the cultivation of our land, the attachment and the resistance of wanting to to, to be back to our land, having mm -hmm. our right of return to our land that was taken away from us. And so that sickle is a very important representation that you see from a lot of Palestinian artists historically as they painted uh, images of their displacement and uh, the, the, the relationship to the harvest, to, to um, and the image of the woman's body itself is how Palestinian artists depict the nation so we are the the woman's body is the motherland right she's the nation and mm -hmm. so that's usually historically done through paintings but in a contemporary way as a photographer and a video artist i have used my own body or the depiction of the female figure as a complicated site of resistance of nation of ethnicity of of story and so that body is is an incredibly complicated the female body is a very complicated site that 
is um, it's it's rich with metaphor as well, historically and in contemporary times. And so she's carrying the sickle. Behind her is the painting on the wall of of uh, Jerusalem um, mm -hmm. and of the Dome of the Rock of our most important mosque, which is the third holiest site in, in our religion of Islam. And so instead of using the vista of a desert scape, it becomes that image. It's actually a projection um, because I couldn't, I can't paint Jerusalem on a wall. It would yeah. take me like, I don't know, a hundred years and I don't paint that well. <laughs> so, um, but I used a, a glass plate negative that someone gave to me from the 1890s. So it's a historic image that I have the actual archive of. Um, and so that collapse, it's like a reclaiming of the image of, of, of our um, exile. So this eternal love song. So as I said to you earlier, the Orientalist photographers use the, these like repetitive motifs of Oriental carpet, hookah, mm -hmm. you know, the desert, the desert scape painted behind you, et cetera, et cetera. And so I, I looked at the kind of repetitive metaphors and motifs of Palestinian artists historical Palestinian artists and that till this day, whether it's memes or it's uh, t-shirts or logos or drawings on the separation barrier, separation wall, these are the kinds of motifs that describe our exile. The sickle, the female body, the farmer, the kofiya, the key, the key representing the keys to our homes that we don't, we have the keys, but we don't have our homes. These are things that get repeated through our popular culture and our historical uh, visual material culture. And then I pick up again. And so you see across my belt, I'm holding the keys there, you know, the sickles in my hand. But all of these metaphors are representations of exile in our country, but they are not our country. And so that empty vessel is showing, talking about the, the fallacy of these metaphors. I'm not critiquing the metaphors of the key or the symbols. I mean, they are precious to us, but they are, as my grandmother says, we have the key, we don't have the home. We don't even have access to the land. We can't even go back. We're not even allowed to enter back. So, I mean, I, I enter back because now I'm an American citizen. I come with my U.S. passport. Um, and because my father is Iraqi, you know, Israel considers me Iraqi. Um, the Palestinian side for my mother doesn't, it's a patriarchal society in the Middle East, so they think my lineage is Iraqi, and that's why I can go back. But my mother and my her, my grandmother couldn't go back, you know, so they're Palestinians, and I had to become an American to be able to ever, ever go. Go back. Mm -hmm. So those are the main parts of those images. Wow, that was so much to impact, Salma. Thank you so much for going into that level of detail. Um, and I want to continue on that subject a little bit, because throughout your, your answer, you talked about um, using yourself in the work. And if, if anyone goes to your website and look at your work, you're, you're, you're talking about migration, mobility, uh, social equality, power and authority. And then you mentioned earlier the colonizer and the colonized. So there's always these like levels of power that you're trying to deal with in and your the binary. work. Exactly. And can you talk about the use of yourself in your work, the self as protagonist. Can you talk about that and your, your perspective on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly, like the non-intellectual academic answer <laughs> is that it was convenient yeah. in Chicago when I first started, right? 
it was convenient. I'm how do I talk about Middle Eastern experiences and gender and uh, colonization and post colonization and war and occupation. And I look around me and my friends want to go hang out at the raves, you know, like I it wasn't I didn't know how to to make the image outside of me. I had to use myself because I didn't even have access. I didn't even have I don't even think I had a passport back then. I, it, it, I, it wasn't until 2004 that I became an American citizen, like after 9-11 that I actually mm -hmm. got a passport and that I was able to go back to the Middle East, which I hadn't seen since I was like 13 years old, right? So it was like convenient. It was me because I, and I could tell the story and I could be this symbol. I could be the surrogate in the way that I understood it when I saw Carrie Mae Weems' work in um, the museum, um, that's underneath Columbia, the, I'm forgetting the name right now. Oh, um, the Chicago. Museum of Contemporary Photography. Yeah, thank you. But, yeah. <laughs> I got Which was like, you know, we went to every day. I mean, that we were on the ninth floor and that was on the first floor and we went to it and then we go up there, our classes, we get to see like archives. It, you know, it was kind of phenomenal. And they did the most incredible like exhibitions and they had Carrie Mae Weems work and she was also a visiting artist, I think in my second year there. Um, so I got to hear her speak. Also Lorna Simpson. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was a good school. It's a good time. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, it's not like someone broke it down to me what she was doing. I mean, nobody told me, you know, it's her, but it's not her. It's, it's a, it's a character, it's a protagonist, but it's also Carrie. I mean, I just looked at it and I understood it. Um, and so there's a, a really big mistake that people sometimes think, oh, you probably were influenced by Shireen shot. I mean, I didn't even see Shereen Nishat's work until maybe my last year of Columbia. So I, it was not, it was definitely the most influential artist for me at that time was Carrie Mae Weems, um, by far. And so, but I wasn't like trying to do her work or anything. I was doing whatever I was doing at that point, which was like writing on myself, whatever. And then so Shereen, when I saw Shereen Nishat and she was writing on herself and she was like writing on the walls, that I was already doing that too. It's just, I was a nobody, right. I was in school. Mm -hmm. um, and so it wasn't that. And then, so then I realized I kind of had to drop that because she was super well known for the writing on her. And then Lalia Sadi, I got introduced to her work when I was in graduate school. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to be another Arab woman that's writing on myself. Like it needs to stop. Right. Like I need <laughs> to figure something else out. Um, but it was okay. So I had a good project out of it. And it, was, it was fine. Um, and so, so, the protagonist, yeah, it's it's a very shifting um, site myself. Mm -hmm. You know, I mostly think of it as a site. I mean, sometimes I think of it as a character, but mostly I think of it as a site that can embody a character, but it can embody the nation, it can embody the conflict, it could perform the issue. It could be the people, it could be the nation, it could be the problem, it could be just a character. It could talk about the personal, the familial, the social, the political. And so uh, it could be a witness. It can be a bite. I mean, most of the work, it's the essential characteristic of the work is the protagonist, right? But even in my project, Silsila, she's very secondary to the land. The land is the, land is the protagonist. The, sac the, 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 protag the physical person, me, is secondary and more as a journeyer and wanderer in that in that series and maybe a witnesser, but not it's not the main element in the way the land is 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 highlighted. And so, yeah, different projects do different things. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, even this very recent project I had called 
um, generation after generation where I'm exploring, I was looking at, again at the image of what was the first hundred years, right, of photography in, um, in the Middle East and what journey it took in that region. So I started with the Orientalist image and then I went to another phase, which was printing technology that revolutionized how photography was distributed, right? Mm -hmm. And how that was capitalized um, in the Middle East. And so I looked essentially at the political posters of the 60s and 70s during the revolutionary period and where uh, the countries in the Middle East wanted to shed their colonial occupiers, right? And so particularly looking at uh, Palestine during that time and the liberation struggles of the PLO and the different factions and group and how they use the image of Leila Khalid and like other iconic female commandos who who were part of the revolution and um, led uh, uh, units of men um, into battle and how they capitalized and understood how the Middle East and how Palestine specifically was understood in the West, right? This backward uh, place where women have no rights and men, everything is for men and women are veiled and secluded. And so it shows the essential characteristics of this place being backwards and not worth, not worthy of, of, uh, of uh, having self-determination and self-rule, mm -hmm. needing, needing the, the West to take care of their affairs, right? Um, and all the patronizing stuff that comes along with that. Mm -hmm. And so they, they resisted that image and complicated that narrative and understanding of what they were by, by pushing the image of Arab female fighters um, to the forefront. And that became like a solidarity movement across other liberation struggles in Chile and Latin America and South Africa. And so these kinds of like images blended together and motifs of the key and the woman and the gun and the armed struggle in the land and the walls and apartheid and, and occupation all kind of had this like radicalized narrative. And so I played with that by working with screen printing and the most iconic image of a particular female fighter, Leila Khaled, and how she was used um, in this, in this uh, struggle, right? As her image uh, and as this like, kind of becoming this iconic visual framing for that struggle through her body. And those are very large scale. And, you know, if you, if you know the Palestine, historic Palestinian posters, you'll, you can pick up the motifs that are used in there, but also just the ones of the, the, the 1960s. And again, as I told you before, the, the image of the woman being a complicated site, being the motherland, it's yeah. quite brilliant that they, that they were subverting the understand of the backwardness and women's oppression in the Middle East. They were subverting that, but at the same time, they were still depicting the nation because they were using a woman's body in, mm -hmm. in screen print and photographs, right? And so I, I performed that in a very, very large works, which, yeah, so that becomes a different way that I could use myself to reference a woman that is an actual person and but she was also being used to sort of depict the struggle and the nation, right? Like, mm -hmm. it's like a two times down the chain reference in the way that screen prints are, and Xeroxes and this cheap printing technology, the reproducibility of the photography allowed them to kind of uh, populate the public sphere with these images. And so 
there was this sort of like repopulation of the image of the female image through my figure and my body that referenced those screen printing moments and our screen prints too as well. Mm -hmm. So, and then like the third component was the moving image, the first videos, the first cinema films that were made in Palestine of the newsreel, right? So the West always wanting to show how great their activities are in their mm -hmm. colonized lands and how they're helping the natives and how they're doing these projects. And so they'd always have these like newsreel films, news 10 minutes that people would go to the theaters and in London and other places and watch. Um, and so how they depicted Middle Eastern women in that time is also played and performed with like a live performance, switching back between those archives images and then embodying uh, a complication of that. And so it's almost like seeing one of the women from Carrie over, but in, in a live format performing um, the kind of absurdity of these depictions. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned early on in your reply that uh, Kirmay Weems was an early influencer. That was my next question for you, continuing on the topic of the protagonist. And you were just talking about, you know, a few of your projects, you know, majority of your film and still work is dealing with yourself, even uh, even your uh, ice, uh, installation work as well. You you have the presence of yourself. And when I think of Kiermaine Weems, I automatically think of power and I think of the gaze. So my question for you is what role does someone like Kiermaine Weems play in your practice early on as a young artist and then even now? Yeah, I mean, I, I think like her Kitchen Table series was one of the standouts for me um, that it could say so much about her experience and black life and family and love um, and what that experience is and the ways that the kind of images that nobody, I don't know. I mean, she crossed over and was, and, and was able to show it in spaces that you weren't seeing those kinds of photographs. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. those images were always made. If we knows, you know, if you look at Deborah Wills's like research and work, you know, those, those kinds of photographs yeah. were always being made, but they were being, made and they were in their own communities and not necessarily circulated out in spaces where um, other people, primarily white people, had power in museums and in galleries and publications, right? And um, for me, you know, I to remember this is before social media and I always have to remind my students that because it's not like you could just drop in and get the information by Googling it, right? Like, you it, had to go you look saw, at it and read it. You had to go look at it. You had to go see the show at, or you had to have access to a great library. And if you even like got something that was not at your library, it would take months to show up if it showed up. And this was, you know, for me to go downstairs into the, into the museum and see these photographs and to open up books that were there and to see her work, to see this kind of work being made about somebody that wasn't white, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and uh, it was not the way that, you know, uh, black folks were, were depicted on the movies and the theaters. I mean, I, I remember the first time I saw like boys in the hood. I like, I think I just, I just kept watching it. I just kept going and paying for the next thing. And I like paying and I just sat in Boulder, like, you know, a very white city. And I just kept watching this over and over. And I'm like, they're like in the home hanging out and the way people, I mean, it was, 
it's not my experience, obviously. It wasn't, I'm not African-American, but it was the closest thing I could find to something that I understood. The struggle and the question, there are very huge differences in those struggles, but there is a solidarity and an understanding um, that this language, like the way that Boys in the Hood was made, was not made for a white audience. It was made for each other, right? And so, and I could see that, and I'm like, there is absolutely zero depictions of Arabs in the movies, period, at that period of time, except for the terrorist or this, like, rich sheikh and his, like, harem belly dancers. Like, there was nothing, like, there for me to look at. And so... I went from being a total enigma to my friends and the society around me, like, what is that? Like, Baghdad, does your father have a bag, dad? You know, Iraq, did mm. you come from? I went from being invisible to 9-11 and being hyper-visible. I mean, even the mm. first Gulf War wasn't as bad as, as when 9-11 happened, because now you have, social, you have internet, you have other ways of the vitriol to kind of come through. And it was... You know, it was the audacity of this moment happening in the United States, and it was so cinematic and messed up, right? Like, it it was beyond, I mean, you could have tens of thousands of deaths anywhere, but because it happened in the U.S. and in the fashion that it happened, it was unbelievable. It was unbelievable for everybody. It was unbelievable for Arabs. It was unbelievable that it could ever happen. So it was so impactful overnight, and I felt... Like I walked out of my house and I was wearing like every indicator of my Iraqiness on me, you know, mm -hmm. like I, I felt like people could see me, that they could see that it's a, like a stamp born in Iraq, you know, like I felt freaked out. I felt exposed. I felt vulnerable, but I knew that I had to do something with that because that is not the way anybody should feel. <laughs> there is an incredibly messed up history that put me in the United States. I should have never been in the United States had Western interventions not come into my countries, right? And so, and this is what I really thought about the Black experience too. It's like, here we get this constant critique of what Black society is by the very situation and the historic forefathers. I mean, I, you know, I don't, I'm not going to have to complicate say that. Everyone knows. That. So yeah. it just felt <laughs> wrong. It just felt wrong, you know? And, and so it was wonderful to finally not have, I mean, Carrie does that work too about power and the critique of institution and critique of power mm -hmm. and instruments in spaces and, and those, but she also makes work that is just gentle and, and, uh, mm -hmm. and intimate and for her own. And, and she could talk to her own and talk outside of her own at the same time in an image. And that to me was just breathtaking. Like I just yeah. had never seen anything like that. It's very different than Shireen Nishat's work, which I love her work by the way, but her work is, her audience is extremely specific. It's for the West, it's for Western consumption. I mean, I'm not saying about her recent work, but those projects that she was known for in the nineties and, and later on, those were not, in in dialogue with an audience that she that comes from her own spaces although she might have been you know maybe it's, maybe that's unfair to say because she was writing in farsi and they were poets um of revolution and and in that writing so there definitely is a nod to that language but she was in the west doing it and you know that that's just all going to become decorative right like mm -hmm. i 
I, I, I had to contend that with that myself. Like when I put something in English or when I put something in Arabic, or if I would do both, who am I talking to? And, and you don't get to have all audiences. Yeah. You have to make choices when you make this work. Like if I do it this way, I'm speaking to this. And if I do it this way, and sometimes I, I try to do both together, but it often yeah. gets lost in translation because these are the very things I could do. I can't undo the part that I'm coded into my body, which is Arab and female. I can't mm -hmm. undo the history of how that is looked at and how that is understood. So even when I'm doing something extremely complicated and critical of U.S. government intervention in, in the Middle East, it's sometimes read as a critique of the Middle East and women's so-called uh, you know, so uh, oppression. Because I do something simple in an image like wearing a hijab. Oh, that means this. No, wait a minute. That's, that's no different than blue jeans, <laughs> you yeah. know? And I sometimes wear blue jeans in my work, and I sometimes wear tank tops, and sometimes I'm covered. And I want to bring all those complexities that women are not just uh, singular in all of our expressions. We are, uh, uh, there is, there's complexity to every country. There's different religions, there's different ethnicities, there's different uh, expressions, there's different uh, degrees of modesty and none, right? Like there's yeah. everything, just like in the US, it's the same thing, right? And that flattening that happens to our experience through images is, is it's a difficult thing to contend with because I use the image of the female Arab body and mm -hmm. it's coded and read through that lens in the West. So you, I, I, could, I could say whatever I want to say, but if people are just mm -hmm. seeing that I'm not there with a remnant commentary next to my work, people are not always reading, seeing me at a visiting artist yeah. talk. So they're seeing it and they're like, they've made up their mind. This is about a woman who's oppressed in the Middle East. As we reach the halfway point in this podcast, I want to take the time out to thank the University of Arkansas School of Art for making this podcast possible. I hope that you've enjoyed what you've heard so far. In this next half of the conversation, we talk more in depth about Sama's practice, her approach to teaching, and her thoughts on notoriety in the arts. Enjoy. And um, I, I was reading the interview from your your book, uh, "Sand the Sand Rushes In," and uh, you, you you talked about that a little bit. You did not want to be that artist that was constantly talking about oppression uh, from your homeland. So yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. But yeah. but I do. I mean, I do work that has social critique of the Middle East or the countries yeah. that I live. I mean, in fact, my versus him project, um, I, I usually deal with gender from the feminine space, but mm -hmm. I wanted to deal with this encounter with, with masculinities um, in that project or something around 2011, 2012, when I did that work. And uh, it was very difficult for me because it's not my lived experience, obviously. Yeah. And, and I didn't know how to tackle it. It's like masculinities. Like, huge subject like what does that even mean but it was very important to me because I felt like Middle Eastern masculinities is so uh the the veneer is so thin in the United States it's like people don't see the complexity they only talk about the terrorist body male body mm -hmm. right like it, they don't or the fighter and not much else and so I felt like you know it was an opportunity to kind of explore it but it was too much to like just do so I mm -hmm. I had I broke it up in archetypes, like 
you know, the nation, the ruler, the father, the lover, the brother, the son. And and the lover was the, the interesting one because it was my opportunity to to to, to connect back to Carrie Maywean's kitchen table series, right? Mm-hmm. And I and so it's on a kitchen table and yeah. it's a man and a woman mm-hmm. and and um and it's I'm a the images in my head now, yeah. Because that, right. that set of images is that all black background. Exactly. And set of stills, yeah. Yeah. So I'm I'm working with a Palestinian male friend of mine. Um, and yeah, so it's like when he courts her, then the marriage is a goat in that one. <laughs> <laughs> there, then, then it's like the troubles, the children and whatever. And then it's kind of like being like kind of locked or they're trying to work at one point and and then they're kind of like locked in the end. They're like wearing cuffs and he's like smoking a hookah and she's painting her nails. But it's like, you know, they sort of resign, like they're in it together, but it's, it's marriage. And and it's a, yeah, it's, it's talking about, that was called versus the lover. It's talking about marriage and love and relationship, but it's also, talk, it's a social critique too, of the kind of like lacking in options, right? That this yeah. like, I mean, that whole project is a social critique for inside that audience, um, for a Middle Eastern audience. I don't know how it's perceived in the West. Um, I, I, I could guess that some of them serve don't serve my purpose because they might think, oh, we'll see, like, look how backwards they are. But, you know, marriage is an institution that all countries struggle with. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it, I didn't want to be the artist that it's a very easy place to become popular and have a platform in the West. Be the Arab female artist that critiques female oppression in the Middle East. Am I saying it's not an issue? Of course, I'm not uh, naive. We struggle with. Mm-hmm women's rights, we struggle with social issues about equality, sexual orientation, uh, economic equality. Uh, we struggle with the same things that people struggle with everywhere, where women struggle with everywhere. Uh, these struggles exist right here in the United States. They have a different way that they look. They have a different way that they appear. They're not the same. Um, we have uh, rights here and a constitution that protect us um, in a lot of ways, but the social implications are also very complicated for a woman in the United States. There are things that women suffer here that are not at great, they're not a great risk for in the Middle East. So yeah. it's very, it's very complicated. And again, I'm, I don't want to flatten it to it being singular. Um, well, there's a lot of, you're speaking about a lot of dualities and, and I want to ask you about that next. You're you're speaking about a lot of dualities. I'm I'm gonna go around about and then back again. <laughs> so um, a lot of what I'm hearing about is issues of identity and representation. And and when you were just speaking about Kiermay Weems and some of the other Black photographers earlier, um, you know, you connected with that in that works, seeing this through a lens of of a non-white photographer or artist. Um, one particular person that you were influenced by, and you mentioned him earlier, is Albert Chung. And I think, uh, first of all, I want to say Albert Chung has a very, very unique body of work. And from my perspective, has not received the proper uh, recognition yet. That's just my perspective from that. And I don't think, again, a lot of people from my generation even know who Albert Chung is, but uh, I'm hoping through them hearing this podcast that they will go look up his work. And I would just like to ask you about Albert Chong's influence on you in particular and, you know, sort of what you took away from his work. 
Well, my generation definitely has a major influence and uh, was quite well known. I, I um, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe, I, maybe, it's, maybe I don't see that perspective because he was my mentor, so I teach his work regularly. Um, and I was. I was never taught his work at all. I had to find it on my own. Really? So yeah. <laughs> now Albert's gonna see this and get upset. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, you know, he was. I mean, he was in the the Venice Biennial. He yeah. was in major exhibitions. But yeah, I mean, I think that Albert. I mean, you should speak to Albert about that, but I think he, he suffered a lot of, you know, racism in the field, you know? And so it, it's, it was a very difficult field to crack. I mean, we're talking about Carrie Mae Weems and Lorna Simpson, and we can have, you and I could probably bring a couple dozens, you know, maybe mm -hmm. a dozen of that era that managed penetrate forward, right? Yeah. And that's why, but it's not like there wasn't photographers, black photographers everywhere. There was, right? And so Albert Chong was highly influential on my aesthetic especially he gave me poetic license and permission and um allowed me to be what i am what i was already naturally as an artist and be um unapologetic about it uh the trends of that time in the era as I was like kind of coming out of grad school or even during grad school was like what I call ugly art, which I love, but I can't mm -hmm. make, you know, uh, it's not yeah. my thing. I mean, I love it, but it's not my thing. And, you know, he'd always have this like critique about, you know, how just lacking in humanity and poetry and, and, um, and uh, experience um, and human condition the work was at that time all the magazines, the photo magazines and, and publishing publications, the things that were getting out there was so divorced of people. It was just like out, you know, dead alleys, mm -hmm. empty streets at night. He, he, used to, he used to call it the, you know, it was like it's a post-apocalyptic, the zombies have taken over the world, there's no human beings. <laughs> and like roll his eyes, he's a very opinionated person. And I love that about him. And uh, he was just like, and he was just, you know, to trash this kind of work or the very, banal and the you know the very cold kind of duckies and and um and you know he was always like beauty's in exile or we're in a point where beauty is in exile and it's like very hard you're not taken seriously you're not complicated as an artist if you if you make beautiful work if your work is beautiful right and 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 people at that time were super snobby about the portraiture as like mm -hmm. they didn't even want portraiture and but you know Maybe because the time was post 9-11 and the United States was invading Iraq, I didn't have any issue with getting my work out there. I was exploding in exhibitions throughout graduate school, showing internationally, selling internationally. I was, I don't know, the timing of it, the work I was doing, you know, maybe my agency, my ability to speak and articulate it, just allowed, and that I was traversing back to the Middle East, the United States and Europe and you know, the, the world gaze kind of was just looking at that part of the world at that time, looking for artists that was um, that could speak to what was happening. And, and, it, and it went on for a long time because the war went on for a long time. And then it was the Arab Spring. And then there was, uh, you know, revolutions everywhere in the Middle East. And then ISIS came. And it was just like, mm -hmm. that is just like a really long time. And you know, I trade all of it away, all of my career away to have just like 10 years of peace in that region. <laughs> I swear to God. So it's, it's people like, oh, you just your advantage. I'm like, that's a really messed up question. I just oh, want yeah. you to know when you're, when you ask that to somebody, it's like, 
you know, uh, I prefer to have the empty alleyway to take photographs and have that be my life work if that mm-hmm. was what I could do at this point. So anyway, Albert, <laughs> uh, Albert's work is just, you know, stunning and he just arresting and he um, just being such a strong person. Like he knew I'm very strong, very intense. And when you're someone like that, it's hard for people to critique you, especially if they think you're doing very well. And so a lot of people are like, well, she's doing great in grad school. They were afraid to challenge me. They were afraid, not as they were afraid, but they, they didn't see a reason necessarily to challenge me all the time, right? And so especially maybe you're afraid of speaking about something that they didn't have a lot of authority on, right? Being the Middle East and maybe they don't know enough. So they were intimidated maybe perhaps, or I don't know. Albert had no problem challenged me all the time when I he felt the work was weak he said it you know the work that he loved he said it pushed me I also had a couple other professors there but also art, both artists of color that really pushed me as well Yumi Roth in sculpture and and Luis Valdovino in video and these were very they're all very different and they had their different ways of doing it but they they broadened my world and and but Albert in particular I credit for um I mean, I credit John White for recognizing I was an artist and not a photojournalist, and but understanding that I was speaking to issues that photojournalists are often concerned with, concerned with, especially with war, through my body, and let me stay in the right place. Like if he had pushed me out of those classes and I would be in some commercial track, I wouldn't even be having those conversations. Yeah. You know, Columbia is a very different place now. The art thing is very entrenched, but that time of the documentary some art and and a lot of commercial stuff was happening so it, him keeping me in the documentary and photojournalism track really uh he gets the credit of recognizing that i was an artist and getting me to understand that my work was political socially relevant and but art and so i was very uncomfortable with that word being an artist at that time i was like my mom's an artist. My brother's an artist. They paint. You know, I suck at painting. Like, it's not what I can do. And he's like, yeah, no, you're an artist. And Albert was something else, you know. Um, it was actually, I think, I don't think he knew who I was the first semester. Um, <laughs> and and uh, um, Maria Magdalena Compass Pons, who's his dear friend, uh, also a big influence on me. Um, as a visiting artist in the first semester and she introduced he had a party for his house and she introduced me and she was just like come on tell him about your work I'm like everybody was intimidated of Albert Chong I was like okay <laughs> so that that helped because she really liked my work and she told him and then when uh, Luis Gonzalez Palma came and he loved my work and he's like he told Albert like that's the one you have to work with so that from that day Albert like okay what is what's going on here right and so he you know, I had a lot of growing to do because I wasn't, um, I had a lot of ideas. I was starting to do stuff, but I was definitely relying on some tropes that were not that powerful yet. And, but there were the early signs of it. And so, you know, Albert was really, he, he told me this, he said this thing to me one time and it was something I'll never forget. It's like, cause I was sort of pushing back and I'm like, well, if it's not good, then how come I'm getting shows? And it's like, you know, People want the work. And he's like, you know, some only history decides if work is any good, you know? And it's, it, 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 right now it could be, it's salient right now. It's, it's, it's of the moment, but is it, is it gonna last? 
And is this practice going to last? You know, like, you know, it, you have to not just do work that people want. You have to do your work and you have to know it and it has to be hard and difficult to get through. And blew me away what he's saying. And I like, you know, wiped away my tears and I'm like, stop being defensive. And it just changed me. And I'm like, that's how I made my first big thesis project, Birthright, which I feel is really the beginning of my artwork. I feel mm -hmm. everything before then I was dabbling and trying to figure something out and Birthright, when I started performing, I knew what I was doing. I was doing the research. I was creating the costumes, creating the headdresses, like all the elements that went into my work. It was like kind of the start, start of my practice, having cohesion and sense and moving forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are some very powerful images in Birthright. I really enjoy yeah. looking at that series. Um, the next question I want to ask you about is the level of dualities in your work and in your life. Uh, you were born of an uh, Iraqi father and Palestinian mother, um, and the, then also growing up in uh, Iraq part of the time, and then moving to the United States. And then you come to this deal with photojournalism, and then you go to art, <laughs> and then thinking about ideas about women and photography, uh, scale and truth. And then again, I'm, I have a note right here thinking of. Uh, with meant to mention in your birthright series, <laughs> but yeah, what what do you think about all those things in in terms of duality uh, yeah. throughout your Binary, life? the duality. Yeah, it's 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 you know it's something you don't know when you're doing it, and then at some point I think I recognized it with third year review, like when I started teaching right out of grad school um, in academia, uh, and I have you have to put together your pre tenure package. It's like halfway through tenure. Yeah. And I, I, I wanted to make a book of all of my work, like just put it all together and send it out to the reviewers. And I'm like, it's kind of the first time I saw all of my work really together, like my video stills, my photographs and my images. And but the thing that I, I that's what I really recognized, like the binary, the duality, it was so essential and it's formal in my work. It's conceptual in my work. It's uh, idea. It's the extension. It's the way I I probably the way I think. So yes, I am, the, the, the question of identity comes into this because I am Palestinian and I'm Iraqi. My mother is Sunni, my father's Shia. That was not something that was a big deal when I was young, but became something more complicated in the Iraq war with the United States, the Shia Sunni division. You know, I was Arab and I also became American, right? There was always this kind of division that I was like, well, I'm not the, I'm, I'm kind of this, but I'm kind of this, but I'm somewhere in between. Mm -hmm. And that hybridity, which is, of course, words you find out in grad school, is, uh, <laughs> is, is, is like, you know, like that was so clear to me for so long that I was like straddling something and I was like sort of falling into the crack in the middle of something. And that was what I pushed formally for a long time. But I realized it also mirrored a kind of language of, of the pattern of, of a recycling. And so I think the recycling is a big part of it because history repeats, right? And in my in my my story is very much of that 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 negation of my mother's homeland, that displacement, the losing the home gets repeated in my lifetime with that negation and displacement of my homeland and that repeat repeating, right? And then we come to the US and then you say, okay, now it's the third identity you get now, right? And and then then the country doesn't want you, right? Or like 
the society keeps rejecting you over and over through the, the narrative that you have to keep defending. So you wind up always staying in permanent exile. And this is a sort of repetition and this fear um, that keeps coming place. I just don't believe in things that Americans feel are essentially true, that they're like God-given right that they're always going to have. They always think they're going to have their constitution. They always think they're going to have their security. They always think they're going to have their homes. I think that mm -hmm. was the big shock in 2007. It was like, how could we lose our house, right? How could people be losing their homes? How could they be losing their jobs? And I'm like, nothing is promised. No, tomorrow is not guaranteed. That's, that is the condition of my people, right? I think that's the condition of your people. And mm -hmm. so you're never allowed to sort of rest into the space where this is a, a given. Even your nationality. I had to give up my nationality because I became a refugee. I, I had to give up my, I had to surrender my Iraqi passport, my Iraqi, my Iraqi citizenship in order to become an American, right? And so this, this, this patterning of, of repetition, and it's, it's not just between this and this, it's also something that keeps repeating. And so, um, yeah, the binary, the duality, mm -hmm. the duality creates third spaces. I don't know if that's the right word, but that's the term I've come to it. And it's given me over time, the new language to understand and reflect my life experience, which I think if you read the book, you would say, you would find out that I found this out, that dislocation is mm -hmm. a location. Dislocation is a location. You know, um, displacement is a space. It's a place. It's not just you're out hovered, you know, like, yeah. and I, and I think there was like real agency to claim that, you know, to stop thinking I am living in a hyphen. I, the, living in the hyphen was, psychologically arresting for me. It was difficult. I couldn't, I, I knew that I would never be a, what people were describing as American, although I think the American experience is complex and it, it has room for everybody in it. And so I reject the notion that I am somehow have to live as an Arab American. I being thinking being American means it's all that complexity, but there's no shorthand for that. You have to say all of that to make your point to come across. And then there is this like longing and nostalgia for something that I have no access to. I mean, I can't access it. It's not true anymore. I, I can't go back to the Middle East and feel like I'm back and I'm home. It's, I'm not Arab in the way that I used to be Arab. I'm not mm -hmm. Iraqi in the way that I used to be Iraqi. They think of me as American when I'm there, right? You're an American. I'm like, you don't understand when I'm there. They yeah. don't think I'm very American, you know? So, <laughs> so, and it's like, and this becomes this like identity crisis that you have, what Mona Hatoum brilliantly calls it an identity crisis. But you can live in that crisis and you make work from that crisis. And I, that was a very long period of my life. But then I, at some point I decided when I saw the massive exodus of refugees leaving Syria, leaving Africa, the, you know, going and dying in the oceans and trying to find safety. It was like reliving all of that again, trying to find home. And I decided to change my thinking about all of it and claim a space of I, my identity is refugee. And I am not Arab. I am not American. <laughs> I am those things, of course. But I identify most with being a refugee. It means displaced. It means exile, but it also means you are always attached to your home. You're always going to have a struggle for your home and you have an adopted home that you are trying to make a home within. It contains all of those things without living in the trauma narrative, without mm -hmm. living in that space where it's, you're in crisis, that you are in transition. 
to live in mental transition all your life is too hard. And at some point I had to say, I am home because my home is the home I made with my husband and my children. That's home. When we went and lived in Palestine for a year in 2014 and 15, we were still home, right? Mm -hmm. And when we move, we're home. And when we travel, we're home. And when I'm with them, we're home. And so that home is this refugee home, that that space that I, I take for myself and that I think other people understand that they have to forever take. We're not all going to go back in the millions in the millions and the tens of millions and the dozens of millions back to our homes. That's just not going to happen. It's just mm -hmm. not the way life works. Yeah. And, and yeah, so there's a space and an identity that's being formed in the 21st century called, you know, refugee. Yeah. And it's maybe too early to understand what all of that means, but it, it is what we are. I'm on the early end of being a refugee and I'm sure there's today people still fleeing Syria. So there, it's, mm -hmm. it's we're, we're on a continuum together. So that binary comes from that space, but I'm I'm taking new spaces now. I'm trying to make new spaces for myself with that. Mm -hmm. And then, and then speaking of trying to make new spaces, and just what you mentioned, those things are so personal yet universal things that you know everyone can relate to from some perspective. Absolutely. Um, and as a professor, you know, in the classroom, you know, how do you use your experience and practice, um, you know, as an artist uh, to encourage students in, 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 in your teaching? You know, how do you speak to your students um, in terms of how you navigated your career as an artist and maker and just a person in general? Well, I talk a lot, so you can see. So it's like they're yeah. never with they're never without uh, my stories. Uh, I, mm -hmm. I love narrative, right? So yeah, um, I always re uh, relate. I mean, I think that's what my work is. They're stories, and and um, I yeah, I through every critique and through every understanding of what they're doing of their work. I mean, the conversation that we're having, it, it it's an opportunity to speak to. A different viewpoint right and not center all of the art world in this like eurocentric western canon or or value system right to upend every question you know to upend everything they're doing that there's no assumption no no, no. i'm not going to assume that you want me to read your images from left to right that's that's some people are going to come into your space and they read right to left right we're out mm -hmm. uh, you know like we're not going to always assume that because it's in English that it's for this audience, you know, you're not going to assume that everybody's in Tucson. And so these are the things that yeah. I keep bringing them up and I bring up artists from all over the world. And, um, you know, but I'm mostly, in, I mean, I'm particularly concerned with the biggest questions of our time. And so I read through that space, but it's very important that you hear where they're at as well. Like it's not just for me to impose some other sensibility, but I, I really don't believe in the end what any of us do is teaching like the thing, you know, how yeah. to use the camera doing, it. I mean, we're teaching critical thinking skills, how to take apart something and put it back in this other way, right? And have that reflect that engagement, your experience and the questions, right, that, that you come to, or even if there are questions or maybe the process, however it may be. I mean, yeah, I have, I have, I don't have one singular way to get to my work. I have many ways of creating my work, whether it's research in books or, walks where I do experiential like mapping of my body and senses like to kind of 
have new informations or the interpretations from my dreams or sketches or a series of questions or the experiment in the process that reveals something and looking back. I mean, these, there, there's no singular way that I arrive at my work. And, and not every artist is like that. Some of them have very specific ways, but I feel it's very important, at least to me, what the, pro, the, the point of being in school, right? When you're learning, yeah. it's very important to try and to experiment and try new ways and try new ways of thinking on and new questions. So I think that's how I bring my, my experience to the class. But in the same time, I also feel it's very important that they learn. I feel like they're going to learn everything that they needed to know about the, the, you know, the Eurocentric canon. Anyway, it's going to happen from yeah. all the professors around them and, and the field itself. So it's incumbent upon me to bring in the most diverse wide range of artists and not those just who are famous from like, you know, the Caribbean or the most there. I don't, I, I think small, mm -hmm. medium, big, I, I, I try to like just flatten this idea of uh, notoriety being the reason why we should study somebody. Of course it's, you, ha you have to be well yeah. first, but it's impossible to know everybody, but that curiosity of looking at other people's perspectives. And I'm really proud of that because students like they, they cite sources and inspirations that come from all over the planet and, yeah. and, and the ways they find to relate to that, it's so human um, to, and that's something I just understood myself very early on by showing my works where somebody would come up to me afterwards and say, that ma work made me cry. It's like the story about my grandmother escaping Auschwitz, you know, like these are supposed to be like, according to the world, we're supposed to be on an opposite sides of this question. No, it's not. The idea of losing home, the idea of someone taking something from you, these are uh, relatable, right? Mm -hmm. That's not a very like, uh, you know, the thinnest layer I could talk about it, but I mean, there are other, other things too. I, I, I don't rest in my pursuit of knowing what I'm trying to make in my work. And I think it's the same how way I approach teaching, right? Mm -hmm. Always trying to, to, um, upend what we think it's about. And so, you know, just even how images are now and how they behave and, what, where we got our sources from and what's the possibilities. And then I think the other big thing is just like love. And I think that is a huge influence from, from Deborah Willis. You know, when I heard her receive her honorary educator award at SPE and I knew her back then I worked with her. I worked with her on that conference. Like we, I helped, I was on the conference planning committee with Miriam um, Ramirez and, and what's wrong with my brain right now, uh, Hannah, and, and Deborah Willis and myself and Myra Green and a few few others um, worked on that on uh, planned that Philadelphia uh, SPE National Conference back in I don't even know when that was 2010. Dawood Bay spoke at. Yeah, Dawood Bay spoke in that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so he spoke about her, and uh, Hank spoke, and yeah, it was like all of her her people came up and her students and colleagues and friends to honor her. And the thing they just said over and over and over and over again was just this like generosity, this like love, like that she emits that this like, where did that energy come from? Right. Like yeah. this commitment to her students, the commitments to her colleagues, but to her students, like, and I've always felt that way about my students. Like I really love my students. Like the teaching has given me, the only other thing that's done this much of an impact if I said besides being an artist is being a mother, right? Like it's just given me a sense of purpose in my life when 
there's just been so much conflict and pain that has defined my life. And it just gives me a purpose. And I feel so strongly about education and photography and art making. And I'm not cynical in the way that some people are about where all the field is going. And I understand all the problems. I understand the notoriety, I understand the money, I understand the auctions. I understand all those issues, but it, there's, I, I believe in people and I believe yeah. in, in anything that's really essential, like food, like breathing. Art making is one of those things it, it will keep finding a way like water, always finding a path through. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I heard that, that those conversations and I'm like, that's how, that's how I, I want to be like, I'm not gonna, I don't need to be anybody else. I, that's generally who I am. I don't want people. I heard it from all my friends and colleagues who give too much. You have no boundaries. You're going to burn out in academia doing this. You're going to burn out. You're going to burn out. You should find ways to like, have more separation from you and students, you know, these are not so, but I'm like, that's just so, again, you're Eurocentric. Yeah. Like I, that's not the way we do things, you know, like I'm all in, we're passionate. Like I, I'm not saying that I don't want to be generalized. I mean, that just sounds like I'm generalizing, but I, there's obviously people who just who are all in, but I, I get, I'm an extrovert. I get my energy from people. I teaching is a very dynamic lived process in the same way. My body is this performer in my work. And I, I live through my body and I make my work through the body. Teaching is the exact same thing with mm-hmm. me. And it's so it's intimate, it's messy, it's it's all of it. It's like unwinding and winding back things up. And so I think that has a lot to do with my culture, but also a lot to do by my specific mentors who, you know, I don't know. I just don't, I don't want to be the person that they say when she said she was a great teacher, but she was, you know, she was an asshole. Like that's just, that's, yeah. that's not interesting to me. You know, I mean, I'm tough. I'm very hard. And, but I don't think the tough and being hard is because I'm unfair. You know, like yeah. I, I, I don't believe in you break down students and you build them up again. I just don't, be, I don't even know what that means. You need everything that you've mm-hmm. been through in your life to build from in order to yeah. do art. And so being raw and being transparent, being willing mm-hmm. to put it all out there is the way I approach my work is the way I approach my teaching. Yeah. I, Sama, I got one last question for you and I'll let you go, but uh, I'm so glad when you just answered that you mentioned um, notoriety um, and it made me think of something that Kerry James Marshall talked about in a, in a, in a um, lecture I heard from him is about, you know, the notoriety is only to the extent where it's like a nominal success. So it's like you go through all these steps, you know, other people in your field recognize you and then that's it. So it's like as artists, are we struggling? I mean, are, are we striving for the nominal success and then stopping there? Or are we trying or is our goal to be in the history books? And that reminds me of what you said about Albert, uh, Albert Chung and his you know, questions to you or challenge to you, you know, is the work, is his, is this work going to be in history when things are over? And in my personal opinion, I think that's where we should work toward um, as artists. And that's what I ask of my students. Uh, I know it's a big ask, but I just, I mean, what else do we do if we don't strive for that? You know, because you want the work to last. Right. But uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> The notoriety thing is one of the most distracting and complicated and difficult parts about teaching art, um, teaching in at universities, teaching in programs. Because on the one hand, 
the institutions that we work for require it for us to keep moving forward as teachers. Mm -hmm. All right. That's the one thing. That's the practical thing. The second thing is the more important part for me, which is notoriety is somehow tied to influence and somehow tied to platform and reach, right? But still to me, art is not a very effective method to arrive at influence and reach or platform because it's just so limited. I mean, if an influencer on Instagram, I don't know, eating pie in front of the Eiffel Tower can reach millions of people, but like, you know, a brilliant mind maybe has 20,000 followers. I mean, what what is this relationship? Yeah. It's not a very effective method for influence. There are probably far more effective methods for influence, but it doesn't make the influence and those who you touch not matter, right? And whether that's or if it's a researcher or a critic or a curator or a historian, hopefully other people from other fields that want to use your research in with theirs and concert with theirs, that, that matters too. It's also a document. It's a record of history that gets to speak from our voice. As a Palestinian, who's as a nation and as a country, our narrative has been hijacked and constantly revised in a revisionist history of what happened and transported that we just even to say that we're Palestinian, that we have, you know, this is where art is so essential. Literature, poetry, music, and art, visual art, like plays, dancing, it's so essential because it's the counter narrative. You know, we don't have the power or the money or the prestige or the influence to stop that narrative, the lie about what happened to us and what transpired. We can't, we don't know how to explain our humanity through this narrative of us that we're all terrorists, right? Mm -hmm. The only way we can do it is through this record. It's also a document, right? It's also an essential record that we get to do it through our own voices. It's the people's history, right? It's the people's story. And so it does matter to have it, that, that production somewhere and that notoriety allows some access to it. it. It points the finger of where to look, but it's, it's not, there's just not enough for that to be the thing to pursue. I mean, it's, it's so low stakes. There's so little money. Why someone becomes famous and someone does not become famous is super confusing, right? Why the world is obsessed. I mean, social media is the greatest place to look at that as a, like a social human experiment. I mean, you'll have an artist that you don't think that their work is challenging very much, but they have charm, right? Or they have that thing, that, that sparkle of notoriety and whatever they say is brilliant. And you're like, actually, I don't know if they even said anything, right? Or yeah. what they said is actually really problematic, but it's brilliant, right? Or someone who's actually extremely strong, but they have no audience. Or what they're, what they're saying is challenging for society at that given time to hear, right? And so they're criticized and critiqued. Um, and then only to be 30 years later celebrated and put up on a pedestal, right? You know, we talked about black portraiture, not just even portraiture not being important when I was in graduate school, beauty not being important. Portraiture and black portraiture is 
in its heyday right now. It's when the Obamas got their portraits made, it's just like, it's like completely shifted. It's like you, everywhere you go, the things that I love, I'm so happy because every time I go, go see exhibitions now, I get to see portraiture. It's out there and painting and, and photography and video. It's, it's become something hot. But in probably 10 years, it's not going to be hot again. And so you can't base your decisions on this thing for notoriety because it doesn't, it's only like satisfying for moments. And honestly, I'm not even sure it's satisfying for a moment. I, on every exhibition, that I've had like a major solo exhibition or a major exhibition that I put new work out or that I worked on for years or months to get to that point. Like, it's so hard to ramp down the next day. It's like, I don't even want to go to the opening to tell you the truth. Like mm -hmm. I already experienced some sort of mourning and death, right? When it happens, I can't even revel in it. There's, there's been a few exceptions. There's some that I really enjoyed, but a lot of times it's really, really, really difficult. And, yeah. um, and I just want to want to go back into the studio and like bury myself, right? And and some audience is incredible, like to engage and have conversations. And sometimes the audience is saying things to you that you feel like you need to take a shower afterwards. You're like, this is not mm -hmm. my, I don't, I don't want. This is not the crowd I would have. This is not the questions I was asking in this work. I don't want, I don't want this. You know, I feel that I'm not being. I mean, that happened to me with someone just over and over and over and over and over again, insisting my work was about women's oppression. Like, and, and it's like, God, I can't win, you know? Yeah. Like, they'll, they'll never be, I'll never be able to, I'll never be able to break this ceiling. Like, I can never crack it. I can't do it, you know? And so they're, they're just, I don't know, I kind of forgot the question and what I'm really supposed to be answering here. Well, but I, I don't know, I don't know if I want to yeah. make it into a history book either, but nobody wants to not be, I mean, these, I don't make work to be in my closet. I want to have a conversation and I learn and grow through how my, the people who interact my work and how they respond to it. I learn and grow from it. It influences my next work, right? Mm -hmm. You see my work, I might have me as the figure, but it changes a lot. It varies a lot. And so I need that. It's essential for me to have that conversation. And I enjoy it to a certain degree to have, to come together to commemorate, you know, I like celebrations in general. I like graduation. I like ceremony in general. I like, you know, weddings. <laughs> uh, but I, I like Arab weddings. I'm not sure if I like yeah. American weddings. Um, <laughs> 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 well, I don't know. I just don't like the same, like, how it's always the same. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I, I like those kinds of things. I understand, but I think that what people are pursuing is a feeling you'll never actually achieve in the arts, mm -hmm. which is you think you've made it, right? It, it's, it's always elusive. I've had to tell my students a million times, like my biggest exhibitions, like the Venice Biniale or like the release of my book, I'm proud of those accomplishments. And about five minutes later, or maybe two days later, the same kind of anxieties and securities and questions come right back. Still there. And I have to and I have to go back into my studio and I have to work, right? It doesn't it's not like you arrive and then there it is. Like it's just it's you're I don't know if other fields have this problem. I don't know if artists are just so analytical and anxious and emotional and we just do this to ourselves. I don't know. I don't know. It's because the field is so elusive and we don't we can't define success of what is success. We don't agree on it. It's not like, oh, you just yeah. published with this journal and then you're it, you've made it, or you've achieved this thing and that's it, you've made it. This is just not true. And mm -hmm. 
and people will say that the, the harshest things around you all the time, you're only as good as your worst show or your bat, your worst work, you know? That's all people remember is your failed show or your failed work. But if you don't fail in trying to make something, you'll actually never achieve anything important in your work. You have to be willing to fail, right? And yeah. so it's it's a very um yeah, it's a very difficult thing to find your sense of achievement from the external in the art field. You have to find other ways inside of you. And so I always try to remind myself and focus in on what I think is the most important, which is, did I, did I lay it all out there? Did I do everything I wanted to do with the means that I had to do it with in this work? You know, mm -hmm. did I stop myself? Did I take risks? Did I push? Did I learn new things? Those become spaces of success for me and leave the idea attached about, I'm not a freaking saint. I am also someone that likes validation too, but I realize that that thing is super fickle and it doesn't mean what you think it means. Yeah. So keep it in perspective. Absolutely. You know, Sama, uh, that wasn't even my last question, but I'm so glad you just went on that tangent, which was very um, eloquent. Uh, it was amazing just just hear that. So I think um, I'm going to end it right there. <laughs> that was my conversation with Sama Al-Shabi. To learn more about upcoming events with the Center for Photographers of Color, be sure to follow along at Photogs of Color on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.